God is called perfectly wise. It's a wonderful thing for us to consider tonight and uh, fitting for us to consider as we move into a new calendar year. It's perhaps a human way of thinking, but when we move into a new year, we think of it as a fresh start, don't we? Uh, A new beginning, uh, a clean slate. And I would suggest to you that if you want to, 12 months from now, look back upon 2018, Lord willing, look back upon 2018 and uh, feel that you have honored God in a way that is, while yet imperfect, perhaps better than in years previous, the the first step you would want to take would be to seek out how God's wisdom connects to our wisdom and how the wisdom of God might inform us as to how we are to live wisely in this world. God has much to say regarding wisdom, and there is much to learn from God's word regarding wisdom. And if we would want to live rightly and live in a way that honors God, what we need is wisdom. Psalm 90, which we have considered a couple times today, fitting verse to think on a day like today, says, of course, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. We'll start by defining and thinking about what wisdom is. So what is wisdom? Well, first off, it's important to know that people who are are less educated, not quite what you would consider learned, uh, they can can very easily exceed the educated and the learned in wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge, while they are connected in some sense, they are not the same thing. We might say that knowledge comes from study, but wisdom comes from insight. This is why people who are advanced in years, generally we think of them as wiser. Because for human beings, insight comes with experience. So if you have a lot of experience, a lot of years on this world, a lot of time seeing things unfold, if you have used all of that in the right way, you can grow in wisdom. So it's different than knowledge. So we might define wisdom this way. Many different ways to define wisdom or to talk about it, but think about it this way. Wisdom is rightly using our knowledge and our perception and our insight of how God's world fits together so that we would act properly unto proper action. Wisdom and perception and insight using all of those things unto proper action. God is perfectly wise Because he rightly uses all of his knowledge, his infinite knowledge, to bring about results that along the way, the way he's doing it, seems foolish to the eyes of the world. The way that God is bringing about the end of history seems foolish to the eyes of the world. But God's perfect wisdom confounds the wisdom of men. We consider three basic spheres of God's wisdom, or spheres in which we see the wisdom of God. Creation, the cross of Christ, and the church. Creation, the cross of Christ, and the church. First, creation. The beginning of uh, the story of Scripture, uh, we see an all-powerful and a mighty God speak things into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Israel moved from talking about creation as the power of God They moved from that into uh, uh, talking about creation as a display of the wisdom of God. One of the best examples of this is Psalm 104. 
where we read, the manifold works of God are an expression of his wisdom. Psalm 104, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. And Psalm 104 leads up to that verse by by showing us, recounting for us, the many ways in which this world has an intricate order. An intricate order that has come about from a very powerful, but also a very wise God. So Psalm 104 leads into that verse by saying this, speaking to God, From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to work and to his labor. Until the evening. The psalmist looks around at this world and he says, There's an intricate order. And it's amazing to see what God has created and the way that He has He has built this, this intricate system so that all kinds of creatures might be cared for, so that they might have what they need. This world is ordered according to the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is the means by which He orders all things. And so We confess that God's wisdom is four things. It is infinite. It is perfect in in the nature of God. It is unchangeable. And it is from himself. God's wisdom is infinite. Think of Psalm 136, which recounts his love endures forever. His love endures forever. And, And in that, it recounts that God has made the heavens and the earth by his understanding. And so there's this connection between his love enduring forever and his understanding and his wisdom also being infinite. We confess that in Article 1 of the Belgian Confession, don't we? We say that God is infinite. Infinite is different than everlasting. Everlasting uh, deals with, you know, he is, he is eternal in the past and in the future. He dwells outside of time. That's why I've said a couple times today, God does not get older as time goes by, which is beyond our comprehension, isn't it? God is not only everlasting, he is infinite. He is infinite in the sense that he, he is not a creature that's extended into space. And all of the perfections that he has are not limited at all. He's infinite in his knowledge. He is infinite in his wisdom. He is perfectly existent in his wisdom. Romans chapter 11, or sorry, Romans chapter 16 says that he is the only wise God. He is the only wise God. No other being could even conceivably show forth more wisdom than God. His wisdom is unchangeable. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? The people don't come to God and say, I think you ought to reconsider this. That happens in in our world all of the time, right? People who are uh, perhaps directors or CEOs or owners of businesses or leaders of organizations, head coaches of teams. They have people around them 
to come up to them and say, you know, I think you ought to reconsider this. That never happens with God. No one shows him counsel. No one makes him reconsider. God's wisdom is unchangeable. God's wisdom also does not come from anywhere outside of himself. It is perfect in himself. He also does not create it in himself. There wasn't a time where God uh, created wisdom within himself. It is a perfection. So these truths, all of these things, we talk about uh, the power of God, the wisdom of God working together, how it is infinite in his nature, it is a perfection of his nature, all of those things about God, there are things um, that, that are, uh, that are in, in line with all of that teaching, where you could have people who are outside of the Christian faith agreeing with a lot of that. Perhaps, perhaps uh, men like Aristotle or Plato, Aristotle was a philosopher who talked about God as an unmoved mover. Plato, talking about the fountain of being. They, they could understand this kind of talking about a God who is infinite in wisdom. Other philosophers, other thinkers read the book of nature. And what have they seen? They have seen all of the things that Psalm 104 recounts for us. That there's intricate order. That there is an, there is an amazing web of life in this world. And they could perhaps conceive of a God who is wise in this way. But here's the rub. That would be an incomplete wisdom, wouldn't it? That would be an incomplete wisdom. Because if there were a God who was perfectly wise, would not it have been better to prevent the entrance of sin and suffering and death and destruction into the world? After Adam and Eve fall into sin, wouldn't, that, wouldn't it have been better if a God were infinitely wise to just start over or just annihilate the world to prevent all of the sin and all of the suffering? See, the world is in many ways upside down. Much of the evidence points to order, but we could think of all kinds of things in this world that don't seem to jibe with sort of the, the joy of the reflection of Psalm 104. What about cancer? What about rulers who abuse their power and exploit people at their disposal? What about horrible, terrible things in today's world like the the modern day sex slave trade? We could go on and on about all kinds of things in this world that seem to not make sense, that the world is upside down. Someone might look look at that and say, whoever God is, he is not perfectly wise. But this is why... When we're talking about God as perfectly wise, we need to speak of the cross of Jesus Christ. For what we see at the cross is God's answer for why he did not just wipe out the human race after the fall into sin. Why he didn't just start over or just annihilate all things in Genesis 3. Why did he do that? Because he purposed to rule over sin. He purposed to conquer sin through his son and thereby to bring his creatures to a place of even greater blessedness than what they enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. We could speak of perhaps two elements of wisdom, two things we would think about, components of wisdom that we would talk about. The first is foresight. Foresight. A man can see beforehand how his actions will have consequences. That is a man who is wise. I'm not going to do this because it will ruin my family. 
I'm not going to take this risk because it will, it will ruin my career. A man who is able to have that kind of a foresight, we would say, is wise. Not only foresight, but an ability to order the affairs of your life so that you will act rightly. A man may say, well... If I know that because of uh, I'm exercising wisdom and I shouldn't do these things, A, B, or C, I'm going to order my life in a way that allows me to avoid even the temptation to fall into these kinds of things. Foresight and an ability to order your life. The point is this. God is infinite in both of these. God is infinite in foresight. Why? Because he actually knows the future. He actually knows all of the things that are going to happen. Not only is he infinite in in foresight, he's also infinite in his ability to order all the things of this universe to bring about the greatest result of his glory, to bring about the greatest result of the goodness of his people. And here's where Psalm 94 comes in. Psalm 94, if you're paying attention to the reading, you see that there are wicked men who are doing all kinds of things, and they say, God isn't going to judge me. And they determine that because God does not instantly judge them. So, uh, they, they commit some kind of wicked act. A bolt of lightning does not come out of heaven to strike them down. And so they say, the God of Jacob will not judge. That's what verses 1 through 7 say in Psalm 94. But Psalm 94 verse 8 is a hinge point. And it says this, You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are futile. And skip forward to verse 15 of Psalm 94. It says this, Judgment will again be founded on righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. God's infinite insight God's infinite knowledge of all things is what allows him to bring about salvation in exactly the way that he did. And oftentimes the psalmist worries about this. When will justice be exacted on the earth? When will the wicked be judged? According to the wisdom of God. According to the wisdom of God and the way that he purposed to bring about salvation. See, only God knew that a greater end could result. Here's the main, here's the main point. Only God knew that a greater end could result in the shame-filled death of his son. Worldly wisdom looks at that and says, what good could possibly come from giving your son over that he might be killed? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The point is this. God brings about contrary ends by contrary means. Through death, He brings life. Through shame, he brings glory. And his ability to see things, his foresight and his ability to order all the things of this universe are what make him perfectly wise in that way. Only God could bring about life through death. Only God could bring about glory through shame. 
worldly wisdom and its limited capacity could never conceive of salvation by the cross. With only limited insight, it would never, it would never make sense for the infinitely wise God to come to earth and walk as a scorned and despised figure and end up on a Roman cross. This is why we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, if they would have known that salvation would have come through Christ and the cross, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were unable to see all that, all that God was doing through Christ. Only perfect wisdom could have known the depth of all things. Only perfect wisdom could have seen the necessity of the cross to rule over sin and death, to overcome sin and death. Salvation transcends not only human but also angelic understanding. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read that angels long to look into these things. They long to understand them in a deeper sense. Christ is the very wisdom of God, though the world sees the cross as folly and failure. We go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Only the Spirit of God can convince men of this truth. If they would have known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You think the forces of evil in this world would have led people on to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ if they knew it would have unlocked eternal blessings, if they would have known that Jesus Christ himself was the key of David and he was going to open the gates of heaven for all those who believe. If they would have known that, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There is a deeper wisdom, and that is the wisdom of God. It's deeper than the wisdom of of men, And only the Spirit of God convinces us of the truth of the gospel and the resurrection. We go on to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The Apostle's point is, you preach the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in the cross of Jesus Christ, you see the wisdom of God displayed. And in the power of that preached word, the Spirit of God comes and opens our eyes to that wisdom. Opens our eyes to exactly what God was doing. At the cross. The cross of Christ is where we see that answer that God has given to why there is pain, why there is suffering, why God allowed all of these things to happen after the fall. Why? Because God purposed to overrule sin. God purposed to conquer sin in and through his son and to give us a greater blessedness even than we had before the fall. Creation displays the wisdom of God, the order of things. The cross of Christ is that ultimate answer of God where we see his wisdom put on display. 
And then finally, we see the church. And the church is a reflection and outworking of the wisdom of the cross with which God operates. It is a reflection of his perfect wisdom. We see a lot of these same themes in the church as with the cross. Glory through shame. Life through death. Riches through poverty. The church, in many ways, is a reflection of her Savior. God brings about his glory by that which is baseless and powerless. We go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God builds the church this way. Not to say that powerlessness in itself is a virtue. Not to say that complete lack of status is itself a virtue. Or that worldly influence is itself a vice. But so that no one may boast before the Lord. In the New Testament, of course, we have various people. We saw an example of that this morning. We talked about Luke chapter 8. Rich, wealthy women who provided for Jesus and the disciples. There are various people recognized who converted to Christianity. And they were able to give to the church out of their vast means. To contribute to the work of the church and the gospel. So powerlessness is not in itself a virtue, but God saves people of all stripes in order to show that no one is to boast in their salvation. So the church that God builds points to his glory. How does it do that? How does it do that? Well, let's consider a few characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of people of various ethnic identities, Throughout the history of the world, people will fight wars. They will die for their tribe, for their ethnic identity. But the Spirit of God creates an identity that goes deeper than all of those things. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ Jesus. And we are united under the representation of our Savior and given a heavenly blessing, a heavenly inheritance, an identity that goes deeper than our bloodlines. The church is also built of various economic and social classes. Back then, at that time, in that world, the Greco-Roman world, rich folks would not associate with the poor. You would not do that freely. But when it came to hearing the gospel and hearing the word of God preached and receiving the sacraments, if you had converted to Christianity and if you had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, there was nothing that was going to keep you from the doors of the church. So you saw rich and poor Throwing their concern to the wayside. Their social identity bowed the knee to Christ. Their social status bowed the knee to Christ. The church is made up of various economic and social classes. The church is made up of both male and female. As we saw this morning, women are disciples of Jesus Christ with no less value than men. Clearly, the Bible affirms the difference between men and women and their roles, but this does not mean that men are more valuable. We see that 
and saw that this morning. The church is made up of of people of various stages of spiritual maturity. It is for those who, who know the Bible quite well and those who have had many years in the church, perhaps their entire lives, and it is for new converts as well. It is made up of people with various family situations, the married, the single, the big, and full families, people with basically no family experience at all, people for whom family is a great blessing, people for whom family is a great pain. Various family situations, all of them are one in Christ Jesus. So why all of these things? Why does all, do all of these things about the church point to the glory of God and the wisdom of God? Because it confounds the wisdom of men. And because from it we know that God, and only God, could be glorified. We should desire something similar, brothers and sisters, to see the work of the gospel in and around us. To see that the church would reek of these realities. A unity in Jesus Christ. And a church that is built upon the wisdom of God. Knowing that only God can build such a quirky family. As the church, only God could build something that so confounds the wisdom of men. In Romans chapter 16, we read that God does all of these things in the preaching of the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith. And to him who is the only wise God, would there be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. So, that is our perfectly wise God in creation, in the cross, and in the church. We consider then, just in reflection as we close, from this God, this perfectly wise God, we would te- that he would teach us to number our days, that we might get a heart of wisdom. We must live this year and all our days in light of that truth, in light of the truth that our days are numbered, and yet through the Spirit, God makes known to us the mystery of the ages, that in Christ we are forgiven. And all who would, who would want to be wise... If you want to be wise in this world, you must go to the fountain of wisdom and you must have God as your teacher. James 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. 1 Corinthians 3, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. If we would be wise, we must go to God, the fountain of wisdom. Also, we ought to be content with what God gives to us. With what God gives to us in this world, we ought to be content, which is not always an easy thing, brothers and sisters. But God is wisest, and God knows best what is appropriate for us, and when is the best time to help us. Rather than questioning God, what we ought to do is to trust Him and seek what He would have for us to learn. The various ways that He is testing our faith and refining us. He cares about you. He cares about what you are going through. He cares about your struggles. And part of our walk through this life is learning to be content in God's perfect wisdom. Finally, we ought to admire the works of God because when we admire the works of God, we see in it the unsearchable wisdom upon which all those things 
were founded. I read one theologian this week who said, it is impossible to rightly consider the works of God and not admire his manifold wisdom. So a desire of our hearts, brothers and sisters, should be that we would rightly consider the works of God and see his unsearchable wisdom. In Christ, we are given a perception into how God uses his infinite knowledge. And in Christ, we are given insight into how we are to rightly order our lives. Westminster Confession ends beautifully by saying, and because we know God has summed up all things in Christ, and we know that Christ is coming again, but we do not know exactly when he is coming again, do we? It says this, As Christ would have us certainly be persuaded that there shall be a day of his return and judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and they may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. I'll end by reading Romans chapter 11, where Paul sums up his his treatise, his long treatise on salvation. And he can do nothing but think about the wisdom of God. He says this, "Oh, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may you be glorified in our lives in this coming year and all of our days. May you empower us to live in obedience to you and thankfulness to you, knowing always that you alone are God and that you hold us in your hand, that we are your children, and that you love us and care about us. Impress these truths upon our hearts. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We'll sing uh, number 280.